broken down pretty, pretty easily, pretty quite simply, into two parts. There's uh, Absalom's scheme to dethrone David in the first 13 verses, and then it's followed by David's flight from Jerusalem from there to the end of the chapter. So um, we're going to look, first of all, at the, the first, first part where Absalom is scheming to dethrone David. And so let me read the first 13 verses of uh, chapter, chapter 15, 2 Samuel chapter 15. It says, After this, David got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were a judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. At the end of the four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he rose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. So Absalom has been waiting, waiting for David to reach out to him. And uh, David has has uh, remained secluded, kind of don't even know where David is. So Absalom concocts this conspiracy, this coup. He's ready not to, he doesn't want to wait until his turn to, uh, to become king at, when David dies. He wants to be king now. So he comes up with a, a plan to, uh, to win the hearts of the people of Israel. And he does this in two ways. He builds this impressive image. I mean, if he were alive today, you know, you could say he is creating a new brand. I mean, he was, he was uh, uh, manufacturing this, this, this new image of what a king should look like, right? He got, gathers chariots and horses. He gets 50 men to, to run before him. It's very, uh, this entourage is unmistakably noticeable. Uh, he makes these grand entrances and... Uh, can't you just see him riding through the streets of, of Israel on the, the shiniest, the fastest, the newest chariot with his, his hair blowing in the wind, you know? And, I mean, he's, he's impressive. And everywhere he shows up, uh, he makes a statement. And, you know, it does, has to remind us what God had warned the Israelites about 
when they wanted a king. He said, you know, this is what a king's going to do. He's going he's to take your sons and he's going to enlist them in his, in his service. He's going to accumulate fields and he's going to uh, make a big impression. And that's what the nation wanted, right? They wanted a king like all the other nations. Well, if they were still wanting that, here was Absalom. He was ready to, to fill the bill. So not only that, he would also rise early and go to the gate of the city. The gate of the city was known to be the place where people would come and, and uh, have their, their uh, cases judged. Um, it was a place where they would gather. So uh, Absalom made it to, uh, a, a practice of getting there before anyone would. He was there uh, communicating. He was always available that he cares, that he's dependable, you could count on Absalom to be there when you needed him. Not only that, he identified with the people from every city. He knew how to work the crowd. I mean, you're from Hebron? I am too. Hebron's great. What? Shiloh? I love Shiloh. But I'm going to spend some time there next year. I mean, he knew how to uh, steal the hearts of the people, and um, he refused to let anyone bow down to him. You know, he instead would get down on their level, show them affection, and, um, you know, I think he would really put modern-day politicians to shame because he really knew how to um, work the crowd, work the people. And so he's, he's carrying this out. Not only that, he's disparaging the current system, the current kingdom. Essentially, he's saying the system is, has failed you. It's not working. There's this backlog of cases, and nobody is getting heard. Uh, we don't know where this king is. You know, you're obviously not getting a fair shake. Someone made the comment that Absalom never met a plaintiff that he didn't agree with. And so, um, then he gives this false promise of justice. I'd be the kind of king that everybody would get justice. And who doesn't want justice? Everybody wants to be heard. Everybody wants to be treated fairly. Where the irony of this is that the one who deserved justice to be served on him for murder promises he'd provide justice for everyone. So, Absalom has stolen the hearts of the people. They are uh, beginning to see that he's, a, he's the type of king that they want. But anytime there's going to be a coup... There's got to be several or a combination of factors that are going to have to come together for it to, for it to come off successfully. And so we read that in, those, in verses 7 through 13. One of the things that's critical is the timing. When do you do it? Well, it's been four years now. Absalom has been at this. He's so familiar with all the people that uh, probably when they think of a king, they think of Absalom. So... The time is right. But in order to, uh, to launch this revolt, there's also got to be a sufficient reason. And Absalom uses this false pretense of this vow that he supposedly made to the, to the Lord when he was in ex exile. And he uses this to go to David to uh, allow him to, to leave Jerusalem and go to, go to Hebron. And no doubt this was intended to persuade David of his commitment to the Lord. And what parent of a wayward child would not 
look favorably on a commitment like this or a, an action like this who, um, of one of their children who, who has been wayward. I mean, David probably had to think, stop and think twice. You know, maybe, maybe I've misread Absalom. Maybe, maybe things are beginning to change. This, this is a good time. Um, I'm not going to stand in the way of of Absalom fulfilling his vow to the Lord. So he said, sure, go. Go to Hebron. That was his birthplace. That's uh, probably where most of his relatives lived. It was filled with people most likely uh, still hurting or offended by David's move of Hebron from from Hebron to Jerusalem. But really, it's probably the most suitable place for his uh, base of operations for his rebellion. So David says, go in peace. Again, pretty ironic that the last words that we know of between David and Absalom, David is wishing the peace of the Lord upon Absalom while Absalom has murder in his heart for his own father. So also, if you're going to have a successful a coup or a revolt, you need supporters. You need people who are going to uh, give the, at least give the appearance that this is all above board. And it says that David, uh, or with, with Absalom, went 200 innocent participants uh, that really displayed approval and solidarity. Don't know exactly who these folks were, but they were most likely some of, some of David's uh, counselors or people in his court, uh, but they go without any any knowledge of what's going on. But the people would obviously look at that and see, hey, this must have David's blessing. Um, but also, you need su- sufficient colluders, and there there were a number of those. He calls them secret messengers, and they were sent out to all of Israel with the understanding that when the trumpets blew throughout the land. They were to announce that Absalom is king. It'd be so widespread that they would either conclude that David had either died or resigned, or, and now that Absalom has been named king. Another important part of, of, a, of a coup is having wise advisors. And nobody fit the bill better than Ahithophel the Gilonite. Well, who is this person? Well, it says he's David's counselor, or at least used to be. And uh, at some point, he and David obviously got sideways with one another. And he's no longer serving David. He's living maybe in, in retirement in Gilanite. Uh, but the most interesting fact about it, and maybe this contributed to that, is that he is actually Bathsheba's grandfather. So it's not hard to put two and two together that when David committed adultery and had Uriah killed that uh, Ahithophel departed David's court and, um, you know, had nothing more to do with him. But he harbored deep resentment and hatred and uh, animosity toward David. It's believed that in Psalm 55 that this is who David is referring to where he says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, the man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. So 
It's all coming together. Obviously, what you need above everything is a, a strong base to, to uh, keep the, the coup, the revolt alive. And it says that uh, the people for Absalom continued to increase and grew strong. There was, there was most likely already a lot of maybe deep dis- dissatisfaction with David's uh, reign. You can go back from the, whether it was from him replacing Saul and uh, his, again, his adultery with Bathsheba, perhaps all of the crimes that Joab had, had uh, committed. And maybe it was just negligence of his administration of justice. But all this most likely contributed to widespread insurrection. <clears throat> so, so the revolt is on. And David needs to, to make a decision. And uh, let's pick up with verse 14. And I'm going to read from there to the end of the chapter. It's pretty long, but uh, let's, let's read how David then flees from Jerusalem. It says, Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace. With your two sons, Ahimaaz, as your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the forge of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David... Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, 
Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you, re- but if you, be a bur- but if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, there are two sons with them there, Ahimeaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. So David really has only three choices before him. He can surrender or resign. But remember, this is a monarchy. And any time a king is overthrown, their chances for survival are pretty slim. Maybe they're exiled, but that was not a good option. Or they could stay and fight. But David feared for the lives of the city. He knew Absalom would come and strike with the sword. And really, Jerusalem was probably too, too big to defend with his small force of, of people. And he really wasn't sure of the rest of the inhabitants of Jerusalem's loyalty, whether it was to him or Absalom. But he really just didn't want to subject Jerusalem to siege and ruin. So he takes the third option and decides to flee and departs with all his people. And it's very interesting as we look at his servants who, who flee with him. It talks about the Cherethites, the Pelotites, and the Gittites. Now, who are these people? We've seen them before, and they're mentioned in, in different other places of Scripture. Essentially, these are David's loyal troops. They're possibly bodyguards of some sort, but, but notably, they're non-Israelites. It's believed that the Cherethites were from Crete, and the Pelethites and, and the Gittites were, uh, were Philistines, a Gittite being a person from Gath, which is interesting. It's where Goliath was from. But again, they were a loyal group or force of men dedicated to David. And it's this, this interaction is with this leader of the Gittites named Ittai that I think really turns David's focus and reorients him into the place he needs to be. He's the leader of this 600-man Gittite force. But why was he so committed to David? What was it about David that drew him into this withdrawal? He was... Was David testing him? I mean, he was... They were thought to be kind of mercenaries. And as it says there, you've only been here since yesterday, figuratively saying, you know, they've, they haven't been there in, in Jerusalem that long. So David maybe didn't really know which side he... he, he uh, rested on. So he says, go, return, return to to Jerusalem. You've only been with me a little while. May the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. Well, Ittai answers, leaving no doubt where his loyalties lie with this double oath and vow, pledging his willingness to be faithful to David, come what may. No doubt it profoundly affects, impacts David. And he's humbled by this man's dedication. 
As this man's loyalty to David demonstrated a willingness to lay it all on the line, so should we have the same degree of commitment to our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, a lot more irony here where David's own son is conspiring to kill him, yet here is this strange foreigner committing himself to David, even unto death. So David says, pass on. Please go with us. And all the people are leaving with him, are, are weeping. In spite of all of David's shortcomings and failures, he's still loved by the people. Really just gives the indication or give the, give the truth that true friends know how to rejoice with us and also know how to weep with us. So we see next then that David, as I said, is kind of turning, turning to the Lord in a, in a way that we haven't seen him do in quite a while. And this is really brought to the, to the forefront when uh, Zadok and Abiathar bring the ark out of its place and set it down as all the people are leaving. And uh, I'm sure they meant well. They, they wanted to maybe protect the ark. They didn't know how Absalom would, would uh, handle things. But David, whether it was Remembering that horrible incident we find in 1 Samuel 4 when the Israelites went and grabbed the ark and brought it into the camp, hoping it would be a kind of a good luck, good luck charm. It would con God into making sure that they were victorious in battle. Um, or maybe he would just, uh, again, didn't want to subject the ark to whatever... Uh, wanderings he was about to undertake. But I think it's really more indicative that he is now leaving it all in God's hands. David is seeking the favor of the Lord, not the furniture of the Lord. He desired to return, but was content that content with whatever God ordained. He was resigned to either return to Jerusalem or be exiled, to death or life to victory or, to, or defeat. He trusted in the will of God. It's, uh, it's believed, and actually it's one of those uh, subtitles of Psalm 3, that he wrote Psalm 3 as he was fleeing from Absalom at this time. And if you read that psalm, it speaks of the deep trust that David had in the Lord at this time. So much so that he says, I can even lay down and sleep surrounded by my enemies because he's confident and secure in God's will for his life. But David isn't just kind of letting go and letting God. He's not taking some fatalistic approach. So he has a plan. He will, he will use all the means at his disposal, whether it's battles, spies, diplomacy, to save his life and the lives of those entrusted to him, knowing that the ultimate outcome is in the Lord's hands. And we really see him uh, turning to the Lord in the next few verses in, in the chapter, especially as we see him leaving with his head covered, he's weeping, and he's barefoot. Really, the, all the indications of being humbled in mourning. Um, and while it's understandable to view David at this time with a lot of heartache and sorrow, He's probably in the best place he's been spiritually for some time. 
He's trusting the Lord. He's praying. He's leading. He's worshiping. And probably at this time, the worst news that he could ever get comes to him where it says he's told that Ahithophel is in the conspiracy with Absalom. And upon hearing that, he pleads to God to miraculously intervene on his behalf, asking him to turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. But I think one of the most interesting verses in this chapter is verse 32, where it says, when they reached the summit, was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. From all appearances, it, stopped, it, it sounds like they stop and worship God. I mean, you don't do that when you're fleeing. But David apparently found that it was most important for them to, to stop and worship the Lord, even in the midst of this uh, trying situation. And no sooner had he prayed, no sooner had they worshipped the Lord, that God sends the answer to his prayer. And it's in the person of this guy named Hushai, the archite. Um, he answered his prayer through this friend of David. And we won't really see until chapter 17 how God uses Hushai, but we do see, again, part of his plan unfolding. He was certain that the only way that he can put any kind of a, a wrinkle into Absalom's plan was to thwart the counsel of Ahithophel. His best strategy was to, was to counter what he knew would be wise counsel from him with contrary counsel that might dissuade Absalom from successful plans. Now, Hushai is down in verse 37. It calls him David's friend. It also can be reinterpreted or kind of given, a, given him a, a title of friend of the king. No doubt he was maybe a civil servant of some sort and... Um, I can't help but thinking that David, when he sees him, is reminded of maybe previous discussions and, and deliberations in the court and remembering that Hushai was there alongside Ahithophel and was probably one of the, the ones who would take a contrary view. Um, so he sees Hushai as a, as a favorable sign and as an answer to prayer, uh, to his prayer that uh, Ahithophel's counsel would be thwarted. So his plan was to, to send Hushai, by, Hushai back. He knew that, uh, he said, you would be a burden to me if you continue with me. But if you go back, you can serve me effectively in Absalom's court. So his plan was to remain informed through his loyal friends. David knew he needed reliable, accurate, and timely information to maneuver and stay one, one step ahead of Absalom. He placed his loyal friends in Absalom's court so word could get back to him of their plans. And it's really interesting to note the last verse of this chapter where it says, So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. God's timing is always perfect. He didn't, he's never early, he's never late. And right at the right time, Hushai returned and was accepted by Absalom to be a, a part of his court. So how do we apply all that we've looked at here in this chapter? Well, for me, I have to, to look squarely in the eye of, of Absalom 
and confess that I see the same desire and craving to be admired and approved in myself as he had. As a man, a husband, a father, an elder, the tendency to seek others' approval over and above God's approval is alive and well in me. And I must remember that that will lead to places that I don't want to go. Also, it's imperative that we learn from the story of Absalom. He was not disciplined, judged, or corrected for any of his heinous acts, nor was he loved and reconciled with David in any sincere way. I was listening to one sermon by one of a pastor about this chapter, and when he gets to this part, he, he really thinks that there was another person who thought about this story, and he told a parable about it, and that was Jesus. And it was the parable of the prodigal son, where in that, par- in that parable on the Jesus, on Jesus, we see there of a father running, embracing, welcoming, celebrating the repentance of his wayward son. So we have to learn that there must be discipline and love expressed by parents, just like we have from our Heavenly Father. And I don't want us to miss two locations that are mentioned in this story, which point us to another grieving king. We saw that David and those with him crossed the Kidron Valley and ascended the Mount of Olives. Our Redeemer, the King of Love, took this same path on the night of his betrayal and rejection. Like David, he also wept and mourned, but not for his own sin and resulting consequences, but for those who were rejecting him and the misery inflicted on all humanity due to sin. This King, the true one, while bearing the judgment of his father for us perfectly thwarted the conspiracy of the evil one. By defeating death, sin, and the grave, he proved to be the only one worthy of our worship, obedience, and love. And his deliverance from our sins assures us we don't have to go places our sin can take us. Indeed, his commitment to his father's plan of redemption demonstrates that we are loved more than we ever dared imagine. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we read the words of this, uh, this account of this horrendous betrayal and rejection and conspiracy of, of Absalom against his father. And we, we just are amazed at what sin can do to us uh, and what it did in the life of Absalom. But we are also amazed that you are never... Never quit working in the, in the hearts and lives of your people. Even though David had sinned greatly himself and maybe was not fulfilling his duties as he should have been, Lord, you cared for him. You were at work even as he fled Jerusalem. and You had not stopped loving him, stopped working on his behalf, stopped protecting him. And Lord, we can rest in that same that same assurance, that same hope. We thank you that uh, you are at work in us and you will never stop working in us until the day of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for that. We pray that you would just use this to help us love you more, help us to be committed to you uh, in the way that we should be. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.
Okay. Um, have some time here. Any any comments or questions that we can discuss, or anybody have anything you'd like to bring up? Okay. Yes. What the numbers were? Yeah. I didn't hear any numbers other than, well, of course the text talks about 600. Um, I, I really don't know how many Cherethites and Pelethites there were. Um, but apparently, you know, the sense was all of Israel. You know, that seems pretty overwhelming. Um, so... You have to believe he took all that in consideration. That it, it, it was looking unfavorable to him to, to put up a defense. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Well, yeah, and that will be borne out in the next chapters, you know, but... Uh, I mean, it's not, it's not mentioned here, but I can't, it, you know, just looking at the previous chapters as we've seen him so conflicted about, about Absalom, you know, I can't help but believe he, he didn't take that into consideration, you know, uh, do I, do I want to fight and defeat my own son or, or maybe just leave? So, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Probably was just trying to avoid any kind of conflict or battle that might jeopardize his life. Okay. Well, thank you all.